Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the all-new GMC AT4 lineup. And Elliot would like to start the program today by showing support to Boko and Mama and Jordan Subban for what they've been through. Jordan Subban, a previous podcast guest, by the way, coming yes. on talking about some of the businesses that he was working on and uh, creating. Okay, so when it comes to Boko and Mama, I always remember the 2015 NHL draft, which you know I was at, and... Tampa Bay was drafting 180th. It was the second last pick of round six, and his name was introduced. And I didn't think too much about it until all of a sudden he came out of the crowd. And, you know, Jeff, what's one of the things that you always look at is, oh, my goodness, you know, who's still here in the crowd at the end of the draft who's been waiting for two days to hear their name called? And Boko Imama was, was one of those people. What I remember was I was standing right near the Tampa Bay draft table when he came in and the first person he met was Steve Eiserman. And Steve Eiserman reached out, shook his hand. And I remember he says, Boko, we're so happy to have you. And he had such a big smile on his face. And he went around to all the people who were sitting at the Tampa table. And you know, there's 20 people at a table and they all shook his hand and they welcomed him. And he was so happy. And this happened right in front of me. And periodically you remember these moments. Like another player I really remember with it happening uh, to was, was Mario Ferraro when he was drafted by the Sharks. When he came down, I was right next to the Sharks table and I saw him go around and, and shake the hands of everybody there. And it's a, it's really a huge moment for a kid. Mm-hmm. I just remember him, Mama, and I was always thinking, you know, I'm going to kind of follow this person's career because I saw this neat moment here. And now I'm really curious to see where it goes. Two years ago, it was actually January 2020. I just remember feeling really horrible when I heard that he was the victim of a racial slur in the American Hockey League. And... On Friday, about 20 minutes before the announcement came out from the American Hockey League, I got a text saying something's up in the AHL. There's some suspension coming down. And I looked around and I tried to find it. It was difficult to pin down before the announcement came out. But when I heard it was Imama, my heart sank. Like, There's two reactions to this, really, I think a lot of people have. You either get really angry or you get really sad. And I got really sad when I heard it was Imama because I said, why again? Like, why does it have to happen to this guy again? It it happened once and now here it happens a second time. The other thing I heard, Jeff, about this one that was really tough was that when the incident happened, he didn't see it. And as a matter of fact, it was reported by his teammates and good on them good on them for reporting it but what i heard happen was there was a zoom call with him and he was shown the tape of the video Mm -hmm. and from what i understand his reaction when he saw what happened it was just painful he was so hurt and he was so angry i heard it really affected the other people on the zoom call like i don't have words to do it justice And I probably am not explaining it to the level that I should explain it. But I just heard everybody was incredibly affected by how Imama reacted when he saw the gesture. And I understand that's the reason that the American Hockey League never released the tape was because they basically said that this is trauma for him and we don't want to 
send it everywhere. And I understand that. I know, I know some people will disagree with it, but I understood it when I heard that. And I just felt so awful for him. I was thinking about it, you know, basically for a day and a half. And then it happened again. And it's the monkey gesture. And, you know, you'll remember about a month ago, I wrote about uh, Derek Joslin. Yes. The former NHLer who's now playing in Austria. And he's biracial. And the same thing happened to him in a game against the Slovenian team. There was a player who did that gesture, and then it happens with Jordan Subban, and it just makes you sick. And, you know, I know there's a a video that went out on Sunday night from Jacob Panetta, and there's a tie-in between all three of these cases. And the tie-in is that everybody here is saying, I didn't mean it as the monkey gesture, I meant it as you're a real tough guy gesture. And after three in a month, you're sitting there as an observer and you're saying, doesn't anybody learn? Even if I took the guilty parties at face value, I'm sitting here and saying, doesn't anybody learn? These are three instances. And I know Jocelyn's was half the world away, but still, you know, it gets around the hockey world. These things get around. And and the one that happened to Jordan Subban was 24 hours after a suspension was announced in the American Hockey League. It was a week and a half after the incident, but it's 24 hours after the suspension. And I'm saying, where's the awareness here? And, you know, people can say, oh, it's it's the league's fault or it's the various players associations fault. But I also think as a human being, you have to be self-aware and say, this just happened here or this just happened here. This happened the day before. I just can't believe that people aren't making it known that this gesture is interpreted a certain way by people. To them, it's offensive. It's racist. And after having three of them in a month, I'm just... I don't know if I'm surprised. I don't know if I'm disappointed. I don't know if I'm just, I'm angry, but I'm looking at this as a complete institutional failure in terms of after the first one happened overseas, because the Jalen Smerick situation was much different. That was a different gesture and nobody is having any gray area about that one. But the first time this happened to Derek Joslin, it should have been everywhere. Don't do this. Don't do this. Like, you may think you're doing this, but this is the way it's going to be interpreted by a lot of people. And the second time it happened with Boko Imama, again, there should have been, like, the teams, the players' associations, the leagues, word of mouth from people involved. Everybody should have been sending out a note on Friday saying, this is what happened, this was the gesture, don't do this, this is the way it's going to be interpreted. And it happened again 24 hours later. And I I just remember seeing Jordan Subban's tweet. And then you see the video in P.K. Subban's tweet. And I was sitting there with David Amber and Kevin Bieksa and the producer, Brian Spear. And we're like, we have to put this to air. And we have to put this to air right away to let people know what happened. And then you hear the pain in Harner Ryan's voice when he's talking about it in the third period of Edmonton, Calgary. And Louis is supporting Harner Ryan. We have to do a better job of learning our lessons. The problem is, like, Jeff, we all love hockey. We do. We love hockey. And I think there's a lot of good people in hockey, and I think there's a lot of good things in hockey. But these incidents, 
they kick the crap out of the sport. They do. You see Akil Thomas's tweet about, is this the game I love? We need to grow and we need to show, like, I really do believe there is room in hockey for everybody, no matter who you are and where you come from. And the hockey I support is like that. But, you know, these kinds of incidents, they're kicks in the stomach. And the thing that I can't believe the most is, because we've now dealt with three of these in a month, is that where are people stepping up and, and learning from from the Joslin incident or the Amama incident that we have to get, unfortunately, a Subban incident here where where is the learning? Where are people saying, men and women, this happened and this is the way it's going to get interpreted and why are we not learning our lessons? And that, I think, for me is one thing, like I've seen it before where I see one thing and people see something else and I've always remembered what that's like. Like, always be aware that something you're doing or saying is going to be interpreted different ways by different people. And I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. I make my mistakes. But the one thing I've really tried to learn is to recognize that not everybody sees the same things I do. And, you know, that to me is the biggest disappointment here is that we're clearly not learning our lessons. This gesture is interpreted and seen in a certain way. And we all have to recognize you can't use the excuse anymore of, you know, I didn't mean it that way. I was talking tough guy because it's happened now three times in a month. And we should all know now that this is the way it's going to be interpreted. Do you have any problem with anything I said there? No, but I want to pick up on a couple of things you said there and color them from my perspective as well. I think when you were talking about leagues and educating players and associations and educating players and coaches uh, educating players, I think we also need to throw a couple of other people of influence on hockey players' lives. One, our agents. That's fair. I think every agent should be talking to all of their clients as well about what this gesture and other similar gestures mean and how your body language can be interpreted by a lot of different people. Like if we're going to have, and listen, I'm with you that this undoes a lot of progress. What we've seen recently undoes a lot of progress and gains that this sport has made. People are going to have to learn how to be more sensitive about how they speak, about how they behave, about the gestures that they make. And that's going to be on associations, that's going to be on leagues, that's going to be on coaches, that's going to be on agents. And it's going to be on broadcasters. And it's also going to be on hockey parents. Mm -hmm. And I'm one. I check a lot of these boxes. I'm very sensitive to this issue as you are as well. Like, I'm with you. I'm part anger and I'm part disappointment. Uh, Harner Ryan is a really good friend of mine. And I'm watching this and it's breaking my heart. And Louis is, is such a great teammate. And he's, we all know what Louis's doing in that moment, too. Like, he's supporting his guy. And, you know, Harner Ryan, knowing what he has gone through in his life to get to where he is at, that guy's worked harder than all of us to get there. That guy's heard things that none of us even dream about. That guy's had challenges that none of us have ever faced to get to this place in our career. I got nothing. I think we're all on the same page about this. Nothing but respect for Hunter Ryan Singh uh, and his families um, to these incidents. 
I want to reinforce again, this does undo a lot of the progress. You know, I'm watching you guys discuss this, and I'm thinking about David. Yeah, of course. I'm thinking about Harner Ryan. And I'll tell you what, one of the best commercials that we air is that Bauer ad for the barn. It's fantastic, and I love it every time it comes on. It makes hockey look really cool, and it's an opening, and it's an acceptance, and it's an encouragement of different types of athletes and different types of people getting involved in hockey. And then I see these incidents, and I say, this is all unraveling. As much as there's a tug and pull, one way of saying, hey, man, like there's a big tent here. Everybody get underneath. There's room for all of it. Then we get incidents like this. I saw the um, the Jacob Panetta explanation video, and I've heard the arguments that we're doing the bodybuilder pose. We're doing the, the tough guy pose. Here's the thing. Right now in 2022, nobody gets the benefit of the doubt on that. No one's getting the benefit of the doubt on that. That definition and that interpretation has very much changed. And I'm watching Jordan Subban react on that video that I think we've all watched a number of times. And to me, that reaction, Elliot, that reaction isn't just about that incident. That was a trigger for him, certainly. And that obviously really upset him. But my thought after watching this over and over again, I thought this initially as well, this is a lifetime of buildup. This isn't just about one thing. This is about, I have to go through this again. Yes. I have to, I did this when I was seven and I started playing hockey. I did this when I hit puberty and there was body contact in the game. I did this when I played my first AAA game. I did this when I played junior hockey. I did this when I turned pro. I went through all of this and here we are in 2022. And here's all these things that I keep hearing about this game and how this game is more welcoming to me, that this game is a cradle for more people like me and there's a spot for me in it and I'm going through this shit again in 2022. I looked at that moment, I said, it's not just about that one gesture at that time. To me, that's a lifetime of putting up with this and just saying, that's it, no more, I can't do it. That's that visceral, raw, enough of this emotion that I saw from Jordan Subban. And that does make me, like you, really angry, really upset, really disappointed, and really sad. And I can only imagine what Boko Mama's going through. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine what Jordan Subban's going through. I can only imagine how Harn Ryan had to get through what was one of the most anticipated games on the calendar all week long last night, the Edmonton Oilers and the Calgary Flames, how he was able to get through that game last night, let alone say nothing of how David Amber got through intermissions. It's sadness, overwhelming sadness right now, Elliot. I'm with you, Jeff. I feel terrible for the victims first, second, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh. I mean, they don't deserve that, and their families don't deserve it. The thing I was happy to see out of all of this was the support of Jordan Subban's teammates. Nico Blatchman, he came off the bench, and he's going to get suspended, but who cares? He stepped up for his teammate, and... I'm just glad to see on on some level that that happened. Nico Blashman, by the way, was a teammate of Boko Amama in St. John with the Sea Dogs in the QMJHL. Oh, I, I saw that he played in St. John, but I didn't even put two and two together. 
Yeah, that was a team that um, Joe Valeno would have been on that team. Thomas Shabbat, uh, Matthew Joseph would have been on that team as well. So listen to Nico Blatchman wear that suspension with pride. No apology for that suspension. None at all. Good for him. You know, Jeff, I just wanted to close by talking about Christoph Rabic and Jacob Panetta. Christoph Rabic apologized by statement and vowed to do better. Jacob Panetta did a, a video on Twitter and vowed to do better. You're going to have the opportunity to do better. You know, you can prove to people that you're honestly remorseful and that you want to do better out of it and you want to make amends to Imama and Suban and their families and their friends and everyone, really. You have the opportunity. Elliot, there haven't been exactly a lot of wonderful stories around the Philadelphia Flyers this season. Expectations were high. We all know what's happened. A pair of 10-game losing streaks. That seems to be dominating the headlines lately. But there is one positive headline, and that's Keith Yandel. On Monday, game 964, tying Doug Jarvis. On Tuesday, game against the Islanders, where the record will be broken. Your thoughts on Keith Yandel? I'm really happy for him that he's going to get to this. There's a lot of things you think about. When I was younger, I was more of a geek as opposed to a nerd. Explain. I just remember someone once telling me, Friedman, you're not a nerd, but you're a geek. So I've just always gone with that. Okay. Hmm. Okay. And it was kind of funny. Like this was not bullying. This was kind of funny, actually. So we used to always joke. One of my friends he was one of those perfect attendance people in school. Cal Ripken. Your buddy was Cal Ripken. Okay, good. Well, gotcha. I don't want to go to Cal Ripken because that's when I started to really gain appreciation. Because by that time, when Cal Ripken was breaking the record, I was, I was, you know, 26, 27 years old. And I, so I, I want to get to that in a second. Okay. But when I was a kid, like people who went to school every day, they were losers, <laughs> I thought. <laughs> Like the nerds would go to school every day, not the geeks. The geeks, we were above that. Yeah, we're going to eat subs and play video games while you geeks go to school. We're going to belly busters. <laughs> That's awesome. And I remember uh, one, one year, uh, there was one guy, it was so funny. He had perfect attendance and he didn't really care about it. But at the end of the year, he's like, I have perfect attendance. I'm going to go through with it. And the last day, which was a totally meaningless day, we played hooky to go play baseball. And he's like, no, I'm not going. I, I, it's the last day I've been perfect till now I'm doing it. And it was, it was just funny. Like, but I used to make fun of perfect attendance. I thought that was a really stupid, dumb thing. And why would anybody care if they showed up to work every day? Mm -hmm. And then I realized as I became a professional and got it into the world, how hard it is to do that. And, you know, Ripken is a perfect example. To show up at work 2,632 days in a row, that is to be admired. It's not to be made fun of. It's to be admired that you can do that. And, you know, Jeff, like, for example, I know how much you love doing your radio show. And it's hard as much as you love to do your radio show 
to show up there every day and do it. it people get sick, especially now. Yeah. People get sick. A family member, something comes up. There are so many things out of your control that can happen. For Yandel to get to 964, I think it's incredible, especially in a sport like this one. Because again, you could just be standing there and someone can run over you or a puck can hit you and you're out. Mm -hmm. And we know that almost happened once in his career. And we know that at the beginning of last year, Florida was thinking of benching him until the, the players went and said, no, no, no. This is not happening. We're not allowing this to happen. I think this is an incredible accomplishment. Although, uh, apparently there's a joke going around that, that people are kidding that are like, either he's not getting tested for COVID or they're just hiding his tests. <laughs> Can we go back to that that game last season? Because that was a big deal. Like there, was, like, there was legit concern. Like going into training camp, they're going to scratch Yandel for game one. They're going to end the streak. They're going to do it. And all the Well, they told him it was going to happen. That it was over. Yeah. That it was done. And the players lost it. If you give a player a cause, he or she will rally. And they rallied around Keith Yandel. And do you remember the looks on the player's face when two things happened? One, when Yandel came out for introductions. And two, when he scored that goal. Yeah. Just the looks on the Florida Panthers' faces said it all. They had created a, an us-and-them dynamic, and he was one of us. And whether you agreed with it or not, whether you thought Yandel should have been in the lineup or shouldn't have been in the lineup, there was that heel-villain dynamic that was created, and he became one of them. And the streak continued. You know, at the end of all of this, I don't know if Yandel has any plans to write a book or do like a, long, a super long form podcast uh, about the streak and how close he came various times and conversations that he had around the streak. But I think it would be a fascinating one one day. And, and I'm with you on showing up every day. Now, for everybody, it's a little bit different. And you brought up the example of the radio show. And for me... One of the things, like when I went over from CBC to Sportsnet, one of the things I didn't have anymore was a daily radio show to do. And I had always done that. Like pretty much my entire adult professional career, I always had a daily radio show to do. And it became part of my routine. It became part of like a daily discipline that I had to have. Mm -hmm. And it almost became like therapeutic. Like I had to have that in my life. I needed a daily discipline that I have to do this every single day. So it became helpful and it's never really been a chore. I mean, at times it is because uh, I'm not feeling that great. Now nah, I got demands Oh my elsewhere. God, it's 12.05. I got to talk to Jeff again. Blech. Yeah, you love it every day. I know. <laughs> no, no, hold my calls. No, I'm not. Oh, no, wait a minute. I am going to be distracted. I'm going to make lunch. I'm going to send texts. I'm going to do all those things. Um, but I see, I crave the daily discipline of that. And I'm not sure what Keith Yandel's motivation is here. But at some point, and I'd be curious when that point was, like at some point, whether it's Keith Yandel or whether it's your buddy that wouldn't go play baseball with you jerks <laughs> as you tried to lure him into playing hooky, at some point, Yandel must have said to himself, I want this record. I'm thinking Doug Jarvis. Like, I'm always curious, at what number do you think Doug Jarvis? Because, listen, at some point, Keith Yandel started thinking about it. And I'm sure at some point, Phil Kessel thought about it. Because he, yep. he may ultimately set the Iron Man streak here. Like if, you know, whatever happens uh, to Keith Yandel, Kessel may catch him. It's good that you brought that up because 
I was thinking about all the people who are around him. Castle is 23 games behind, right? Mm-hmm. And look at some of the people that got close in recent years. Marlowe, Cogliano. You know what I think it is? I, I, and now there's suddenly a drop-off. It's Yandel at 963. It's Castle at 940. And third is Brent Burns, 639. That's the thing to me is I think it becomes competitive. Now, Jeff, you're competing. Can I just play? In a game where a lot of people get benched yep. or they get hurt or something happens, I'm still going. To me, that's the competitive nature that makes Keith Yandel and, and Phil Kessel NHL players, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be in that lineup. I don't want to jinx it, so I want to move on here. Mm-hmm. But a premature congratulations to Keith Yandel. We'll pause it there because, again, I don't want to jinx the guy. I- I'm really happy for him, too. So am I. It's meaningful to him and to his teammates. One of the reasons, too, Jeff, is that he picked Philly this year and he had a lot of options Yeah, was because the Flyers were committed to, we're going to get you there. Okay, speaking of the Philadelphia Flyers, Saturday was tough. out of the penalty box wins the race and salts it away saturday was really tough against the buffalo sabers the losing is the losing the questions are the questions uh, you're chuck fletcher what's going through your mind right now well first of all bill Meltzer, who does a great job of covering the flyers and their alumni he tweeted out on sunday that he's heard that chuck fletcher will hold a state of the team press conference within the week date and time tbd okay so to me, the biggest question is, has Fletcher been told what the direction of the team is? From what I understand, there have been conversations and he's presented you know, what he thinks should be done. They just had their scouting meetings. Has that been decided? And that's the number one question. See, I, I think the one thing, Elliot, that everybody is curious about here is who stays and who goes? And have they made those decisions? Have they had those conversations? Let's just get the elephant in the room out of the way because he will be asked about Claude Giroux. Mm-hmm. Has that conversation happened yet? How active will they become trade deadline time? What happens to, you know, you've mentioned Rasmus Ristolainen lately a lot. What happens there? How many players are untouchable? Like essentially, the, the question with the Philadelphia Flyers is, we know there's probably going to be changes. The question is, how deep does this thing go? Well, that's the thing. Like, Are they committing to a full rebuild? They didn't want to do that before this year. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, we had a good season recently, and you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. We want people in the building. We don't want to rebuild. Like To me, the Flyers have two jobs to do, to figure out, what's going on with their team, and also to rebuild their relationship with their fans. There's one more. What's that? The coach. I think that's all part of the direction they're going in, right? Like, if you're going to rebuild, the Flyer fans were mad about Ed Snyder's birthday not being recognized on a home game on the date of his birthday. And Chris Terrian took a real run, uh, the former broadcaster and former Flyer, took a real run at the organization this year for not properly supporting the alumni game. 
and was the Flyers Hall of Fame weekend. And that really resonated with people. Mm-hmm. I think they have to fix that too. You know, when it comes to players, the one everybody's focused on the most is Giroux. He's their captain. He's been a flyer for a decade. He's one of the best players in the history of the franchise. He really cares a lot about being a flyer, and he still plays really hard. And he has control over his situation. And Jeff, what's one team in every trade rumor? Colorado. Colorado. Like, you know, Colorado could use a right-hand shot. Who couldn't use Claude Giroux? The biggest challenge I have with that is... Can you make the math work, even close to the deadline? If Claude Giroux wants to go chase a Stanley Cup, that's a team you go to, one. And two, I see a fit there. By the way, just as an aside, for right shot fits Mm -hmm. for the Colorado Avalanche, there are two names that jump to mind right away for me. One is Claude Giroux, Mm -hmm. and the other, and we'll see what happens with this team, but if it goes south, I wonder about Joe Pavelski there. Yeah, that, I think those are both. Those are the two. Those are good, both good, very good calls. But excuse me, sir, we're talking about the Flyers right now. So, I want uh, to make my point. And I'll just put my feet up and <sighs> let you. It's a hard fit because, for one thing, Colorado doesn't have like a player there you're looking that makes money. Yeah. Like even if the Flyers keep fifty percent, Colorado, I don't see an obvious player that they want to move to take off their roster, right? To get them to Giroux's number. That's number one. And number two, say maybe you have to use a third team, then the price to get them becomes even greater. There are teams that can do it. Oh, yeah, there's no question. There's There's teams teams that that can do it. Again, this is my opinion. This screams Colorado. I just don't know if it works. Okay, Elliot, the the low-hanging fruit time. Although, you know what? We really should make the point. Even low-hanging fruit is nutritious sometimes, Elliot. The rumors and the trades and the speculation. And let's begin with the Montreal Canadiens and Ben Sherratt, a player in demand, a, uh, a a player of consequence for the Montreal Canadiens and their new general manager, Kent Hughes. Will this be the first decision slash trade that Kent Hughes makes? I think so. I, I mean, it makes sense to me, really. By the way, you know, I have to say Montreal for a team that really is being stripped bare of like you wouldn't even recognize the team that went to the Stanley Cup final. They played hard this week. They had every excuse to get killed in some of those games and they played great. I thought they were going to win again. I thought they were going to win again. <laughs> Did you not get that feeling on Saturday? I don't know. I just looked at all that Colorado firepower, and I was—I said they're going to find a way to win this game here. I, I, oh, I know. We all we we all thought that, but was there not a part of you that, for at least part of that game, you said to yourself, uh, "Maybe Montreal can do this." Yeah, no. I thought they played really hard. I just thought Colorado was going to find a way, especially when it got to overtime. I just didn't think that they were going to be able to do it. Suzuki scores. You're not thinking, oh, here we go. It's a- no, because it happened all week, right? <laughs> they were right there. And then, you know, the other team would, especially when it gets to overtime, it's almost like, you know, with some of their lineup, it's almost not fair because then you shorten the benches and that's where their guys yeah, they really take over. They kill you. They kill yes. you. Yes. I know. And they have another, you know, another weapon that kind of gets buried in the headlines in Taves, who's been nothing short of fantastic yeah. this year. And he was in on the overtime winner, Landeskog scored. Anyhow, go ahead. You're back on Montreal. But I do think Sherratt is probably the first 
you know, because he's the UFA. And, and I already think there's teams jockeying here, right? I do think there's some teams here who are saying, we would like to do this and we would like to start this as soon as possible. And, you know, I think that St. Louis has been around there. I think Florida has been around there. I think, I think that's a player that Calgary has interest in. And, and, you know, just the other team I do wonder about is Toronto. And again, I think that the Maple Leafs will be patient and not overreact to some of the things that have been happening lately. But the reason I mentioned Toronto specifically is that I believe that when Ben Chirot was an unrestricted free agent, and he signed with Montreal. Toronto was in there. And they just couldn't make it work. But they liked him. He was interested in them. And he is like a, a local guy. He's a Hamilton guy, right? Let me ask you this point blank. Is this Jake Muzzin insurance? Is that what this would be? Well, no. I think you want him to play. But the one thing I've heard about Muzzin is that, you know, it's a concussion. So you always have to be careful. But I've heard generally they're optimistic that it's not worst case scenario there. But, you know, it never hurts to have that insurance, I guess, as you call it. The only only reason I bring up the term insurance is, you know, Jake Muzzin, the way that he plays can't be replicated by anybody else in that lineup. That is true. And that's why I'm saying, like, okay, so if he's out, here's the insurance. You still have someone else who can do similar things. Mm -hmm. That was my only point about having Muzzin insurance. So we'll see. Jacob Chikrin, speaking of defensemen. And this has been an interesting one to follow. This is your story. Like, you've been working it, so. It sounds like the Coyotes have one offer, Mm -hmm. um, which meets that, I I guess we're sort of loosely calling it the Brent Burns threshold, the uh, the young player, the prospect, and and the first-round pick. But this auction continues. Like, I think there are a lot of teams around that are interested in Jacob Chikrin. You know, we've talked about Anaheim before. We've talked about St. Louis, uh, the Islanders and the Bruins and the Florida Panthers, who I still think are going to be the team to watch here. The New York Rangers, the Los Angeles Kings. I think we have to put in that mix as well. I wonder if this is the point where... You know, you're not getting the best offers, but you're getting offers that satisfy your criteria. You're not getting your A-list prospects, but you're still getting prospects and you're still getting young hockey players. I don't know that they're any closer to pulling the trigger on a deal here. And like, as you always say, you know, it's tough to say that when one phone call can end it. (laughs) You know, if all of a sudden the Anaheim Ducks say, okay, Mason McTavish, well, the whole thing's over. Yeah, but we don't think that's happening, right? You see, that's the thing, though, with all of this, because you attach any team to to Arizona, and let's just say for sake of argument, Anaheim, and there's a fit there because they don't know what's going to happen with Hampus Lindholm, and that could be a great spot for him to slide in if Hampus Lindholm walks to free agency. And then you say to yourself, well, Arizona's going to want Mason McTavish right away. I don't know. They have a lot of prospects, but that's going to be the one I'm sure that they ask for. I don't know that Anaheim does that. No way. Knowing how much they think of Mason McTavish, knowing how they're looking, you know, the future of their organization. Uh, and we just had Ryan Getzlaff on, and I asked him about the 2003 draft, and will he be last man standing? And he said, not a chance. Mm-hmm. So you know he's thinking, eh, I might be close to the gate here. But they're looking up the gut for the next 10 years, that organization, and they're seeing Trevor Zegers, and they're seeing Mason McTavish. Yep. Do they want to let that go for Jacob Chikrin? Just like with uh, the Florida Panthers, you know, the uh, the other significant team of interest. You know, do they want to let go of Anton Lundell? I don't think so. But I don't think so. I don't think so. But I put it this way. 
do you not get the feeling that if Arizona is at the best offer stage right now, this deal would have already been done? Yeah, I, I do. It's poker time. Yes. Like, I'll tell you this. When I hear you say they've got a legit offer, they're telling people, show your cards. Are you in or are you out? Like, I don't think Arizona wants to wait a long time on this. They may say publicly they do, but I don't believe they do. I don't think they want to risk an injury. I think they'd really like to do this if they can. When I hear you say that, I say, ah, someone wants people to drop their cards. Are you at the table or are you fishing your wish? Hmm. Are you playing poker or are you playing fish? (laughs) And fish is at the other table. So I'm curious your thought, though, on why they would want to, because on the surface, you would look at this player and you'd say, good price tag, has term, what's the hurry here? I'm with you. I think they want to get something done. I think that everyone here is a little bit impatient. They don't want it hanging over their team. And also, Chikrin's been hurt before, right? Yep, that's true. Yep. Other stories we're going to follow this week. The ongoing situation with Evander Kane. What do we look for next, Elliot? The league is not tipping its hand on this. You know, last week, I think there were some teams who thought it they were going to find out. They didn't. You know, it's one of those things they could announce it at any minute. The league is being pretty quiet about what they know. You know, if he can play, I think it's probably Edmonton and Washington if Washington's in. Hmm. All right, a smoky break for our Thoughtline partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. With meats prepared and smoked in-house, it's no wonder why they're Canada's home for barbecue. Check them out, and as Elliot always says... Try the ribs. Yes, their ribs are smoked in-house every day until they fall off the bone. And don't forget, Montana's has all-you-can-eat ribs every Wednesday. Head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar and take the all-you-can-eat rib challenge every Wednesday. Smoking good barbecue only at Montana's. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. So my buddies in Calgary were all over me after Saturday night's broadcast. Why? They're like, could you have rooted any harder for Koskinen? They're saying, don't you know how much we hate the Oilers? Hang on, hang on, hang on. I get it. I understand Calgary Flames fans. I understand it. And it just goes against everything you stand for to cheer for anyone wearing that jersey. I get it. I understand it. I got nothing but great feelings about Koskinen after Saturday. Yeah. I saw a guy that got beaten up. Yes. Every time he had the nerve to wake up. All week long. All week long. We saw Leon Dreisaitl resist trying to get, you know, lured into slamming him. Wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But everyone else took a whack at that pinata. Everybody else was taking a swing at Koskinen. And I don't know that any of us expect this to last. But for one night, at least for one night, when everybody said, this thing is going to cave in. And and it was 2 nothing after the first period. Calgary scores those two goals. And Elliot, you know, they could have had a couple more Yeah, in that period. Were you not saying, oh boy, here we go again? You saw us in the first intermission. It was Listen, by the way, I, I, I want to make one point too. That may have been Kelly's best work this season. Yeah, I thought Kelly Rudy on Hockey Night this weekend was phenomenal and incredibly insightful and revealing and, and sensitive and 
Kelly's always good, but there was like a, a, a layer of uh, another, like an extra layer of humanity that he placed on top of this by putting himself in the place of Miko Koskinen and talking to us from his perspective and, and what he needs and what Kelly has gone through. Man, that was great. That was great by Kelly. It was really good. It was fantastic. Like, I get it, Calgary Flames fans, but isn't a part of you cheering for that guy? Like, how do you not cheer for Koskinen on Saturday? Like, specifically in that third period. He kept that game alive. They said, look, we wanted to win one nothing and have Koskinen make 56 saves. That's what they told me. Hmm. That's what I thought was pretty funny. Uh, but I was happy for Koskinen, too. He had an awful week. Like, that whole Edmonton team, they needed that victory in the worst way. The worst way. They did. And good on Koskinen. 44 saves. Good on Evan Bouchard with a pair of goals. And good on Leon Dreisaitl, who had a fantastic night as well. Rifles a perfect pass to Dreisaitl right wing. Play is onside. Dreisaitl to the net. Scores! Pooley-Arvey, the net front presence, allowing Dreisaitl to cut inside the patience and he outweighed Jacob Markstrom before making it 4-3 with five and a half to go. Well, yes, the Pugliarvi drove the net hard, and he got a piece and sent Shillington on his butt in the process, and that opened up an opportunity. You don't see Chris Tanev get walked wide. He is one of the best defensive defensemen in the NHL, and the Edmonton Oilers on a brilliant individual effort from the MVP two years ago, Leon Dreisaitl have got themselves a 4-3 lead. Heck of a pass from Duncan Keith to trigger the play. Pooley-Arvey. By the time we have the podcast drop on Friday, we're going to know all the members of the Canadian Olympic team. You mentioned yeah. a few of them the other day. You know, just disappointed for podcast guest Devin Dubnik that he didn't make the team. Yep. You know, he could tell he was hoping to make it. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out for him. But good luck to all those Team Canada players. Stay healthy, everybody. That's the men and the women. The the the, the men for everybody team. competing at the Olympics. Stay healthy. Yes, and get there safe. So, just we're all on the same page as well. The men's team will be named on Tuesday. The women uh, will be leaving for Beijing on the Wednesday. Time for a couple of emails before we sign off. Free Giroux. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I love this one. I love this question from Beegs in New Hampshire. Did you see Claude Giroux's effort in the shootout against the Islanders? A slap shot in a shootout from a star player. Is this him mailing it in prior to a trade? And what are some of the landing spots? Well, we've already talked about Giroux and trades, but this isn't the first time we've seen Giroux do this. There's no way that guy's mailing anything in. Come on. Well, hang on. No, he's not. But I mean, as far as the slap shot in a shootout or slap shot in a penalty shot, he did this against the Leafs. I want to say he's done it against San Jose. Like Giroux's done this before. To me, it's one of my favorite moves in hockey. Just coming in point blank, just atop of the hash marks and letting one go. Brian Rolston did this, Elliot. Remember how many times did Brian Rolston do this? Like every shootout, Brian Rolston, oh, here comes a slap shot. Yeah. Thomas Vanek would do this on the regular too. Sometimes he'd do that around the world move. Just you know, circle around the puck and then blast it. We've seen Chara do it, which must be the most frightening thing oh, in the yeah. world Terrifying. for a goaltender. But you know who used to do it? I Hoodler used to do it too. You know who used to do it? And he used to love it because the guy's such a rhinoceros on skates. Remember Marion Hosa doing this move? I don't remember him doing that. Just coming in and blasting it. I just don't know what goes through a goalie's mind. 
like you know you're powerless you're just like i'm just gonna try something and maybe kind of get in the way like i'm surprised it doesn't happen more often i love the slap shot from the hash marks move on the shootout do you like that move elliot i do i i think it's entertaining i think it's funny look whatever works right i love it coskin the other night they don't ask you how they ask you how many Yes. Uh, okay, from Philip in California. I was a bit peeved to listen to the latest episode and hear... No- Uh-oh, I know. Philip. Hang on. What did we do? Well, he heard no mention of Timo Meyer. Uh, I totally respect that Victor Hedman deserved airtime for his game against LA, but Timo also had a pretty good game against Los Angeles. Yeah, I think so, uh, Philip. <laughs> Five goals. Uh, how about some Timo time? Do you remember the first time you saw Timo Meyer play? Yes, it was in a CHL game. And I just remember it was one of those nights where he had the puck and nobody was taking it from him. Great power forward. Don't remember. You know, there's some players because at that age, some are more filled out than others. Some players, you want to check the birth certificate. Is that player really (laughs) 20? Meyer was one of those guys. Yes. Uh, Halifax and then uh, Ruan Naranda. And the first time I saw him was, I mean, I'd seen him on television playing for Halifax, but live at the uh, the 2016 Memorial Cup with uh, the Huskies playing in Red Deer. Like, that was the year where London had, like, Marner and Dvorak and Kachuk. That was the top line. Ole Olevi was on the blue line and Max Jones. Like, it was stack team, and they ended up beating uh, Timo Meyer's team. But I just remember, like, to your point, seeing this big, hulking power forward that could move his feet, and the one thing more than anything else that just stunned you was the release. Yeah. Like just how this guy's shot was heavy. Like I'm, I think like a lot of us, we've been waiting for Timo Meyer to emerge as the next big power forward in the NHL. I wonder if we're there. I had heard that San Jose told Meyer they expected a lot different from him this year. That if he really enjoyed being a member of the Sharks, yeah. that this had to be a better year for him. And it's pretty clear he likes being a member of the Sharks. He started out good, too. Like, there was a stretch there of about two to three weeks that you could have made an argument, albeit in a, how shall we say, in a minor key, not a major (laughs) key, in a minor key uh, for the Hart Trophy. That's how good he was for the San Jose Sharks when they um, had their first little run. Uh, Okay, we'll finish up with this one, Elliot, uh, from Bill. As a Canucks fan, there's been a lot of discussion recently about potentially moving JT Miller. I think it's a move worth discussing given his age and the fact that he'll be a UFA next summer. But I'm wondering how a potential trade could impact how other teams, players, and fans will perceive the organization and the potential negative locker room dynamics that it might create. I.e., players won't be happy management's trading away one of their best players and making them a worse team. What do you hear? What do you know? JT Miller. I think Miller is sick of the trade rumors. That's number one. I think he's reached a point where he's like, like, like there's one a day, like enough with this garbage. <laughs> I think he's kind of tired of listening to it. I, I have no doubt that that's the case. Look, the guy plays hard. I do think you get to a point where players getting close to the end of his deal. You have to have an honest conversation with where, where are we going here? And sometimes a year and a half out, a player may not be willing to say, I'm leaving, I'm not coming back, or I'm definitely staying. Sometimes they will. You have to kind of figure out where this player is, but they don't always have an answer. The one thing I think about Miller is that they've been called on him a lot, 
not necessarily are they interested in trading him, but they get calls about him. I know Benning got a ton of them. And whenever, you know, the Vancouver media would report, oh, I, I'm hearing a JT Miller trade rumor, you know, and it would get out there. Other teams would start calling or, or hey, are you guys trading Miller? And Benning's head would spin around like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. And he'd be like, <laughs> again? When Benning's out and, and Rutherford takes over, you know, he's starting to do all his due diligence and people are calling him like, what are you doing with Miller? I think they know exactly what the market is for him. Mm-hmm. Look, I think they'll try to stay in the race as long as they can. I'm sure there will be the value of trading him this year versus, you know, staying in the race and, and seeing if that's worth it to us. But I think they're going to have, if they want to do it, I don't think they're going to have a shortage of teams saying, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're going to do it. But I just don't know. Like The one thing I'm starting to hear is that teams are starting to say that the Canucks are going to be willing to do some things. I think Rutherford has let that be known that, you know, there are some things that they're going to be considering. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if he said it's this or that or this in particular. Very good. Um, Elliot, I want to close by talking about and offering condolences to the Gillies family. Mm. Clark Gillies um, passed away on Friday, a giant of the game, a giant on the ice, a giant off the ice. My heart breaks for our friend and colleague, Justin Bourne, his wife, Brianna, the Bourne and, and Gillies family, very close. I think we all have memories of either watching Clark Gillies play or meeting Clark Gillies or seeing him at the rink, uh, whether it's at, you know, charitable functions as well, whether it's, you know, crushing a tin of beer on his head as he famously did, a wildly generous man, a really good hockey player, uh, a hockey hall of famer. Brianna wrote the most wonderful, like beautiful thing about a beautiful man uh, on her Instagram, uh, wrote just a beautiful few passages about Clark and, you know, condolences and, and all respect to Brianna Bourne. Shannon Hogan, who's Islanders host um, on the broadcast on Friday, just spoke so beautifully about Clark Gillies. And, I mean, she's a thorough pro, but, you know, underlying all of it, you can tell in her voice just how much Clark Gillies meant to her, how much Clark Gillies meant to the Islanders, uh, meant to all those fans, meant to that organization and he was someone that everyone loved being around um, because Jethro always had a smile and a kind word and a laugh. And he just made you feel like a better person when you were around Clark Gillies. Elliot, do you have a thought on Jethro? I met Ed Hospitar once. Ooh. And Ed Hospitar was a former NHL player who yeah. was a, a very, very tough guy. And we talked about uh, one of the more famous incidents of his career, which was the fight between Philadelphia and Montreal before a Stanley Cup semifinal playoff game when the Flyers were tired of the Canadians shooting the puck down the empty nets. They dressed guys like Hospodar who weren't going to be playing, who would stop this, would stop this craziness from occurring. Chicanery. This chicanery by starting a fight. And it was a pretty famous incident. And Hospitar was talking about that. And then he was talking with people about another one that he really remembered. And that was when he told the story about provoking Clark Gillies. Yeah. And he said that Clark Gillies was telling him, stop, stop. He's cross-checking him and he's 
slashing him in the back of the legs. And, and Gillies is like, stop, stop, don't do this. I warn you. And he went too far and Gillies put him in hospital. And he said that it was it was my fault because he warned me not to tempt him anymore. We broke his jaw. Like that yeah. was that was that uppercut. I, I can the minute you said Ed Hospitar, mm-hmm. all I can think about was the uppercut from Clark Gillies. Again, you mentioned how good Kelly was talking about Koskinen. Yeah, I thought Kelly was just as brilliant early in the show talking about Gillies and showing the picture of the two of them with their bowling <laughs> team trophy from yeah. the Islanders. One of the greatest lines of that. Generation Trio Grande, um, Brian Trache, Mike Bossy, and the great late Clark Gillies. Condolences to the Gillies family. I remember um, interviewing Dave Schultz once, years and years ago, and we talked about a number of things, and the name Clark Gillies came up. And he talked about, which would have been a year after Clark's Regina Pats won the Memorial Cup, the Islanders and the Flyers are facing off in the playoffs. And Gillies is in the lineup, and I guess Schultz must have thought that, okay, who's this kid? I'm the gunslinger here. I'm going to show him who's who. I'm the king. And Schultz said... I went at him and I hit him real hard twice. And it didn't phase him. As a matter of fact, he laughed. He laughed at me. And no one's ever laughed at me during a fight. And I didn't know what to do. And he goes, and then he tagged me with a couple fast. And they were hard, hard punches. Now Gillies with the right. Gillies again. Well, forget about third man in with 22 seconds. And this game decided. Gillies destroying Dave Schultz. And there's Ted Harris from behind trying to grab at, let's see, who is that? And everybody on the ice knew, oh man, Dave's in trouble. Dave's in trouble quick. And I think it was Moose DuPont jumped in right away. Third man in, classic Flyers of the 70s. When you guys losing, you jump in to end the fight. DuPont jumps in and the fight's over. As Moose DuPont... And all he could hear was Clark Gillies laughing, which must have been haunting. And this guy was just a kid. And now Gillies just laughing in the face of Schultz. 6'3", 215 pounds Gillies. And there are many people that look at that one specific moment. Clark Gillies taking on Dave the Hammer Schultz one of the toughest of the tough, and they look back on that and they say, that's the moment the New York Islanders got their identity. They won the cup years later, but that was the moment they got their identity and they weren't getting pushed around anymore. Well, Schultz looked like he was on the way down. (laughs) Schultz amazing to keep on standing as uh, Gillies just punishing with that right hand. Mark Gillies a victory, and you can tell on his face. The Islanders now with the icing on the cake. As Schultz destroyed by Gillies. 